Dear Father, we praise you and we thank you so much for your faithfulness, especially your covenant faithfulness. We recognize how you have worked through history uh, to bring your promises of restoration to bear and how there still remains a promise of our completed salvation, how there still remains a promise of Israel's glorification, how there still remains the promise of your kingdom here on earth. We long for that day and we praise you as we see you working through history and uh, even through the present uh, in the church. We do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. We are in a new series, but still in the same book. Hmm. Somebody's car? Okay, so we are in the life of Abraham. And this morning we get to see some angelic visitors come and uh, visit Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And as we move forward, we're going to see two of these three angelic visitors go and visit Sodom. These are two very different visitations, even though the characters are the same. The main point for this morning's message that I want you to have uh, at the forefront of your mind as we move through the passage is that God has chosen to restore creation through a single nation, beginning with a single man. God will ensure the fulfillment of, his, of this promise by his own integrity. Despite man's relatively unchanged sinful condition, God will prepare a means of restoring fellowship between the holy God and fallen man. God here visits Abraham and Sarah in anticipation of the birth of this nation in the fulfilled promise of a seed by Sarah. You'll be surprised to see that we only have two points instead of three this morning. Uh, don't think that means you're getting out of here any earlier. <laughs> Maybe. The Lord only knows. But we'll begin with the hospitality of Abraham and then see some honest doubts of Sarah. Now, there's going to be lots of comparisons that we can make this morning in this passage uh, between such as the visit to Sodom, even Adam and Eve in the garden. But one parallel that we really want to draw out this morning is the difference between Abraham and Sarah. Abraham right now, if you remember from the last uh, chapter, has received this wonderful promise of God and it has brought him great joy. And when he sees these angels return, his entire mannerism is changed to that exceeding joy. While Sarah is acting rather bitterly in the tent. She does not believe this promise that God has given. And so we see Abraham having great joy. And Sarah, although blessing is coming, not enjoying the wonderful peace that she could have in God's promises. Well, we begin with these three providential passers-by who come to visit Abraham while he is sitting outside his tent. And we have immediately for us identified one of these three visitors. It says, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. Now the Lord here is Yahweh, the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. This is the pre-incarnate God come to visit once again his servant Abraham. In the last chapter, we saw him visit as well 
the Lord appeared to Abraham, and when he had finished talking with him, in verse 22, he went up from Abraham. Now, in chapter 17, we had a 13-year gap from what had occurred in chapter 16. But here, there appears to be almost no gap at all. And in fact, as we look through the coming chapters, we'll see that even to chapter 20, no more than three months could have passed. And so this is very soon after, in fact, the rabbis in their commentaries on the Torah usually cite only three days. They say three days occurred between the last visit and this visit. And this was so that these three angels, and they don't believe the one is the pre-incarnate God, uh, but they believe three angels came for three tasks, one to heal Abraham's circumcision that had occurred three days earlier, they say the other to destroy Sodom, and the other to confirm the promise to Sarah. They say no angel can ever do um, more than one task, and uh, so I'm convinced that all of these angels are blonde. I can make that joke because I'm blonde. Well, that one didn't hit very well, did it? <laughs> this is not a congregation of blonde people. This should be okay. <laughs> very good. Well, where does he come to meet them? Or they came to meet him by the Oaks of Mamre. And if we remember all the way back to chapter 13, uh, yeah, chapter 13, this is where Abraham had come to dwell, in the, uh, in the city region of uh, Hebron with these three brothers in Hebron, one of them being Mamre. Well, this location is where he now lives. It does not belong to him. He is sitting there in a tent waiting in the heat of the day. This is his home. It belongs to him by divine right. But he, does not, he is not the one in possession of it at this time. He is living in someone else's possession. <clears throat> we also see some similarities here, though in the way that God came and visited Adam. Unfortunately, back in Genesis 3.8, what should be a moment of fellowship with God coming to visit Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day turned out to be a very upsetting encounter. But with Abraham here, we don't see that sort of upsetting encounter, at least not with Abraham. Uh, but this does begin part of the parallel between what occurred in the garden, and what is occurring here in 18. You remember that Noah, or Moses rather, whenever he has the opportunity, he draws us back to that original scene in the garden. And he shows how man continues to be sinful, but how God is working in them to fix the problem of sin. We also have a very strong contrast in the chapter that is going to come after chapter 18 which will say now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, and Lot saw them, and he rose to meet them. He bowed down with his face to the ground. Both of these encounters, these angelic visitors come to visit uh, either Abraham or Lot. Abraham, he meets in the high ground of Hebron, and Lot, he meets in the low grounds of Sodom. Both were sitting when he arrived, or when they arrived. Both were reposed in their place of dwelling. However, Abram has or Abraham has remained a nomad, living in a tent, while Lot 
is now living in a city and sitting in a place of authority. Well, remember back to Cain, when he left, what did he do first? When he wandered off into the land of wandering, he built a city, a city which would protect himself from the curse, a city which would cause the curse to have less of an impact on him, not needing to work for his food day after day. Uh, But here Abraham is sitting in what appears to be a mid-afternoon siesta in the heat of the day, that heat in which he is going to work and by the sweat of his brow will eat. We see Abraham laboring and we see Lot not. We also see Abraham in the middle of the day when men are supposed to be awake and we see Lot in the evening. Now this would be a little bit more poignant if this were in the Gospel of John or something like that, where John constantly makes distinction between events that occur in the day and events that occur at night. Usually we see the more nefarious events occurring at night, such as uh, Judas going out to betray Jesus. John makes specific note that that occurred at night. But here we do see Lot hanging out by the city gates, this place of authority, in the evening, when men should probably be asleep. These men, when they come to Abraham, we see that there are three of them. He lifts up his eyes and he looks and he sees them simply standing there opposite him. Now, this seems rather strange to us. And in fact, envisioning this episode, it would be a little uncomfortable in our culture if you just look up on your, when you're sitting in your property and suddenly there's someone standing there in your yard looking at you. Uh, but here in this Bedouin culture of 2000 BC and even in present day uh, Israel, this Bedouin culture is normal. This is the equivalent of knocking at someone's door, standing and waiting for an invite to come any closer. We have one of these men identified for us already. This was the Lord. And then we have these two other angels. All three of them have come down and appear in some sort of human form. This is not unnatural. This is not lacking for normalcy in the Old Testament, where the angel of the Lord on multiple times appears to his servants. And here the angel of the Lord has appeared and taken on the form of a man. And Abraham meets him, sees them, and invites them in to eat. This third person is on two occasions identified as Yahweh. And there are many people who say that this cannot possibly be God, because for one, we're about to see him eating meat. Uh, They take great offense to that. Um, In fact, we'll see him eating milk and meat together. Uh, which the Jews take great offense at, Uh, not because of the Mosaic law, but because of a fabricated law that they have imposed on the law of God. But this is certainly God, and he is identified as such. And Abraham appears to recognize him. Abraham appears to know who he is, and other commentators will say, well, perhaps this is God, But Abraham could not possibly have known God because he treats him like a man, not like God. Well, first, no, he doesn't. 
And second, though he treats him like a man and offering him food and rest and nourishment, he has not had 2,000 years of church doctrine separating God from man and saying that God has to be treated so much differently. God is working through history to restore fellowship like we had in the garden. And here we see that sort of fellowship taking place. God, yes, is on a different level, but not separated from fellowship, not so aloof from mankind that he cannot sit and share a meal with his servant. And so in Genesis 18.2, we see that these, when he saw these men who were standing there, not only did he get up, but he ran to them to meet them. And as soon as he met them, he bowed himself down to the earth. Now this reflexive has the idea of bowing his entire body flat onto the ground. When he meets these men, he knows just who they are. We see him treating these men similarly to how he treated Melchizedek in chapter 14. This is a God whom Abraham has come to know well and to know intimately. This is the sixth time that God has appeared to him in visible form. The difference between Abraham's meeting and Lot's meeting is always subtle, but it is different. Notice that when Lot sees these two angels, he rose to meet them. Abraham ran to meet them. Lot rose to meet them. We see Lot continually giving them due deference, but we do not see the excitement to see them that Abraham has. When Lot sees them and he rises to meet them, he bows down with his face to the ground. Now this may simply mean that he looks towards the ground in humble deference to these men. It may mean that he actually put his face to the ground, but it lacks the prostration that Abraham gave to these three men. Abraham reminds us more of John in the, in the book of Revelation. When I saw him, the risen Christ, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me. This is the kind of fellowship, the kind of excitement to see his God and his Savior that Abraham has that Lot lacks. Lot lacks the joy of salvation. Not only that, but we see Abraham going out of his way to serve these guests, not just giving them due deference that culture demands, but going out of his way to give them a bountiful feast. First, there is an issue of translation to deal with. Many of the texts will say, my Lord, in lowercase, or my Lord's in lowercase, and very few will say, my Lord, in capital letters, indicating that he is speaking to the one true God. Well, the problem here is that this word Lord is in the plural form, but it is used with singular pronouns. That means that Abraham is conceptualizing this plural noun as if it were a singular person. So the problem with calling them lords here, speaking to all three, is that Abraham doesn't treat it like this. Abraham treats this address as if he is speaking to one person, although there are three present. You'll remember last week when we talked about Sarah's name and how God changed it from Sarai to Sarah, and how we 
translated Sarai, or yeah, Sarai as my princess is, plural, rather than singular. Probably speaking of Terah's joy that he had in his royal daughters. That A-I ending indicates a plural form, and the R-I ending indicated a singular form. Well, the same thing is happening here in Lord, where we have Adonai instead of Adoni. We have plural lords from Adon, Lord. This must be an address to the one true God. And we'll see as we go through this text how Abraham is using a singular you to talk to God when he had the option of choosing a plural to speak to all three men. He is addressing the one with a plural noun, which is only done with the one true God. He says, if now I have found favor in your sight, the sight of his Lord, the one true God, please do not pass your servant by. Now, notice that Abraham is pleading for fellowship. He is requesting that they stay not for their safety, but for his joy. Lot, on the other hand, does plead with these men to stay, but not for the joy of their company, rather for their safety. In Genesis 19.2, we read, he said, Now behold my lords, lowercase, and he speaks to them as plural, please turn aside into your servant's house. Now here is also a difference where Abraham comes and brings the banquet out to them by the tree that he was resting at comfortably outside his tent. Here, Lot says, come inside my dwelling. Then he tells them, spend the night, where Abraham simply says, rest. At your leisure, go. He says, wash your feet. This is common courtesy and custom in this culture. And he says, so that you may rise early and go on your way. Now, this might seem like good kind of care, but how many of us go to visit our friends and they say, quick, get in the house, eat fast so you can get up at five and get out of here. This is not restful fellowship. Lot is telling them, quick, as quickly as you can, get out of the streets of the city get inside the safety of my house, and as soon as you get the opportunity, as soon as it is safe again, get out of here. The question must arise, and we'll deal with this in the next couple of weeks, why is Lot here? If this city is so dangerous, if this city is so ungodly, why is Lot here? Then he says, spend the, or they say, no, we'll spend the night in the square. Now this isn't normal, spending the night in the city square, I think they're provoking Lot here to really get down to the core of the issue. And so Lot, in response, urges them strongly. This isn't, uh, okay, you do you. If you want to stay in the square, it's perfectly safe. You can do that. I'll bring you some food. No, this is, no, guys, trust me. Get in my house now. And so they turned aside to him and they entered his house and he did prepare a feast for them. He baked unleavened bread, and they ate. And now this is a good feast. This kind of reminds us of the feast that Israel had before they departed in the Exodus, and perhaps they're remembering this as Moses delivers this 
written word to them, but it's lacking the lamb that they ate, and it's also lacking in the richness of what Abraham is about to bring them. Abraham tells them simply, please let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Now he's speaking to all three and rest yourselves under the tree. He says, I will bring a piece of bread. Now he is going to bring far more than just a piece of bread, as we will see, that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. There is no urgency for them to depart. In fact, we might even assume here that Abraham would like them to stay longer. But recognizing that they've come here for a task, he allows them to get on their business. But he does ask that they sit and enjoy some refreshment first. And they say, so do as you have said. Well, now, once again, we see Abraham hurriedly preparing all that he has promised for them and more. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Now, Sarah doesn't say anything here. We don't hear her talking until a little later on. We can't really assume her attitude here. But Abraham is just quickly run into the tent, say, quick, make some bread. I'm going to go get a cow. We're going to feed these people. Well, what he tells her to make, he says, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Now, this isn't three cups of flour, which itself might be plenty, if not more than they need to feed three people. Three measures of flour, one measure equals three gallons. Three measures is nine gallons of flour. And it's not just any old flour. This is fine flour, their finest food. And he is to make, or she is to make, not just uh, simple bread to give them energy, but bread cakes. And she is to knead it and prepare it all. That is a lot of work to quickly just run in and tell your wife, quick, do this. Here in uh, 1 Samuel 25, verse 18, we see Abigail hurriedly preparing food for David. And what does she prepare? She prepares 200 loaves of bread, two jugs of wine, five sheep, and five measures of roasted grain. Not quite twice what Sarah is here preparing for these three men. And this is for David and all of his men. A hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs. Now, since measures isn't quite just a number of a sheep that we can tell, it's hard to really estimate that this is a big number unless you see the other provisions around it. 200 loaves of bread, two jugs of wine, and these wouldn't be two bottles of wine. This is two jugs of wine. Five sheep, a hundred clusters of grains, and 200 cakes of figs. Five measures of roast grain is on par for the quantity in 1 Kings 18.32, we see Elijah preparing a trench around the altar that he's going to fill with water, and he prepares it so that it is big enough to hold two measures of seed, just less than what has been, or what Sarah has been told to prepare in flour. And when he fills it, he fills it with four pitchers of water, which are each about a half gallon, and he fills it three times, 12 half gallons, six gallons 
of water in this trench that can hold two measures of seed. This is a lot of bread that Abraham has just asked Sarah to make after telling his guests, I will grab you a piece of bread. Not only that, but Abraham runs to the herd. And when he got there, he took a tender and choice calf. Not the first one he saw, the very best one he has. He took a tender and choice calf, literally in the Hebrew, it is a son of a heifer. Uh, so this is the uh, calf and not the cow. Uh, that'll be important here in a second. He gives it to the servant and he hurried to prepare it. Now, it's a little hard to tell at times here who he's talking about, but it appears that the only time he's talking about the servant is in these two lines. He gives it to the servant. The servant hurries to prepare it, just as he had told Sarah to quickly prepare the bread. So he's got his whole household up and preparing the food for these men. Now, when he brings it, he claims that he prepared it, which by extension of his servant doing the work, we can say that, yes, he did. Uh, but here, the he seems to switch back to talking about Abraham rather than the servant. And so he, Abraham, took curds and milk and the calf, which he had prepared, and he placed it before them. Curds would be the curdled or sour milk. We might think like mozzarella cheese or something. It would be refreshing, not, not gross and sweet milk. Now these aren't really things that you eat when you're about to get energy for a quick journey. In fact, imagine drinking a, a big glass of milk and then running a marathon. Doesn't sound very fun. Rather, this is the kind of meal that you would eat in luxury and repose, not to prepare for a big journey. The meat that they're eating isn't just for sustenance, but it is the choicest and best calf one that would be sat down to enjoy at a feast. Interesting here, we have Abraham, the servant of the Lord, preparing a feast in the presence of God, while we look forward to our future with God where he will prepare a feast where we will dine at the millennial kingdom. He places this meal before them, these heaping loaves of bread, the best possible calf, and this two types of milk before them, and then he stands beside them while they eat. He doesn't join them and eat with them. He takes the place of a servant and waits under the tree, waiting for them to finish and waiting for them to bring their business to him. Well, now we move to Sarah entering into the story a little more closely. Because part of the business of these three men, two angels and the God in the pre-incarnate form, they come to once again promise Sarah's pregnancy, this time specifically promising her conception. In Genesis 18.9, then they said to him, these three men said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. Now, this isn't a question they needed to ask for their own understanding. As we move forward in the text, we'll see that this one who is speaking with Abraham even knows the very thoughts in Sarah's head. He knows exactly where Sarah is. Once again, this is reflecting back the language of Genesis 3, but it's also to bring into attention Sarah. 
who has just made all of these cakes, and as Abraham is standing outside in their presence, she is standing in the tent and apparently in the tent and apparently listening to what they're saying. And so he said, now speaking of Yahweh, the the uh, one of these three men who has come to visit, he says, I will surely return to you. So now he's come recently, he's come again, and he's promising that he is going to come again a third time. He is getting to be a regular guest in the presence of Abraham. And now our English translation says, at this time next year, which is nowhere present in the Hebrew text. But they are borrowing this interpretive text from Genesis 17, where Abraham is told that at this time next year, God will visit again and Sarah will have a son. But what the text actually tells us is not at this time next year. Oh, we'll get there in a second. Here he says, this is mirroring the image once again of Genesis 2. He says, returning, I will return, just like God had said, uh, dying you will die when you eat of the fruit of the tree. Here we go. But rather than at this time next year, what the text literally says is at the time of life or at the time of living. In Genesis 17, 21, it said, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. They've borrowed this and interpreted Genesis 18. Uh, but here it says, at the appointed time this year next. Now, looking forward into Genesis 21, we see that God is certainly speaking of her conception here, and that would be a good interpretation of what he means by at the time of life. He is going to visit her once again at the time of the life that he has promised to bring through her at the time that it begins. In Genesis 21, verses 1 through 2, we read, Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said. When did he say this? He said it in 1810, the verse that we're looking at here. And the Lord did for Sarah as he promised. The same thing he promised in 1810. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. The primary idea here is that Sarah conceived. And the concessive idea, or the idea that is attached to this idea, is that eventually this child that was now conceived was born. And it was born to Abraham in his old age. Now, he says, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him, to Abraham. This was speaking back to 1721. So in Genesis 21, 1 through 2, we see God stating his promised, or the fulfillment of his promise, both to Sarah specifically, that he would visit her at the time when she conceives, and to Abraham specifically, that he would visit and uh, Sarah would have a son, but these are looking at two different times. The first part of this verse is looking at Sarah's conception, and the last part of this verse is looking into the future when Sarah's son would be born. And at that time, the fulfillment of God, or the fulfillment of that promise by God. So when we look back at 1810, 
He's literally saying, returning, I will return to you, or surely I will return to you. This is an absolute certainty. At the time of life, or at the time of conception of this promised son, and behold, a son to Sarah, your wife. And so Sarah is listening to this at the tent door, which was behind him. Now this hymn is probably speaking of Yahweh. So Yahweh is facing away from the tent, not looking at Sarah. And Sarah is guarded by a tent door flap anyways. So he is not seeing what she's doing, but he knows because he is the omniscient God. But Sarah has something to say about this promise of conception. Actually, first Moses has something to say about this promised conception. This is an editorial note. Moses also agrees with Sarah that not only Sarah, but Abraham, they're both old. Abraham has made this statement. Moses is now making the statement, and Sarah is about to make this statement. The text makes it absolutely clear and certain that this, by no natural means, should be occurring. Moses writes, now Abraham and Sarah were old. They were advanced in age, literally having many days, and Sarah was past childbearing. Now, in the Hebrew, this literally says it has ceased to occur in Sarah, the cycle of all women. In other words, now she has passed menopause. There was no statement of this in the last few chapters, but we see at this point, God is once again delaying and delaying and delaying the fulfillment of this promise until it is absolutely certain that no one but God could make it happen. Remember in Genesis 11.30, we're told that Sarah was barren. At this point, she is still a young and spry 75-year-old woman, 65-year-old woman. But her whole life to that point, until 65, she was known to be barren. That means despite having the opportunity to have children, no children were ever conceived by Sarah. After decades of marriage, Abraham and Sarah failed to conceive. This was Abraham's point. After 90 years from uh, her and 100 years from me, now we're going to have a son? After all this time? That's what's so unbelievable is that decades and decades of marriage did not produce a child, but now God is promising a child. Sarah is nearly 90 years old. Abraham is nearly 100 years old. Now, Abraham's going to go on to have another child, Midian. This will be yet a few decades from here. The issue here wasn't that he was too old to, to produce children, though for Sarah, this is the issue. For Abraham, it's simply after this many years, really, and by his own wife. Not only that, but it's been 25 years since God explicitly promised a male descendant through Abraham that would be the recipient of this covenant from God. 25 years he's waited for the fulfillment of this promise. And now we add to the list of impossibilities that Sarah not only was barren to begin with, but has now gone through menopause. There is no chance of her body by any natural means producing a child. So what would you do? Naturally, she laughed to herself. Now, she's not overtly laughing in the face of God, but she is disbelieving God's promise. She's not going out and making a mockery of herself and her husband. 
These are her private thoughts. But God knows her private thoughts. And she has a responsibility to trust and believe God's promise. We see her, like Lot, robbed of her joy that she could have at this moment. The joy that we saw Abraham having last time when he simply received the promise of God, believed it, and laughed for joy. Here she is laughing in disbelief. And we'll see it's going to lead to sin, lead to her lying, lead to her fearing. Her issue, and again, these are her internal thoughts. After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Now people try many different ways to get around the simple fact that this word is only used in one way. This word pleasure is only used of sexual delight. In other words, not only is she barren, not only are they old, but Abraham and Sarah are not copulating anymore. Now God has not chosen to use Sarah for an immaculate conception like he will with Mary. He has chosen to go about the natural means of man producing a child with woman, but God is going to be the instigator behind its success. And I think this is really at the heart of the issue of why God has come so soon after the promise to Abraham to deal with Sarah's disbelief. Because God is going to work through the natural union of this marriage to produce the child. In other words, Abraham and Sarah are going to have to get over this idea of we're just not having sex anymore. Abraham's 100, I'm 90. She says, we're too old for this. So we add this to our list of impossibilities standing in the way of natural production. Sarah and Abraham no longer have this marital fellowship. But God knows all and is working around Sarah's unbelief, and he is going to bring her to a point of faith. By the time we see her again in chapter 21, we see her rejoicing with the Lord. But now knowing Sarah's thoughts, rather than speaking to Sarah or calling out to her while she's in the tent, Yahweh turns to Abraham. And he says, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Now think of what happened back in chapter 17. God came to Abraham and told Abraham of this promise. He did not come to Sarah and tell Sarah of this promise. So who is going to tell Sarah? Abraham. Now there's two possibilities here. Either Abraham did not get around to telling his wife, and this is the first time she's hearing of it, or else he told her, but has not convinced her. We've seen Sarah lagging behind Abraham, for lack of a better word, in his spiritual growth, but he is the spiritual head of this household, and he is responsible for Sarah as well. And so when God questions Sarah's disbelief, he turns to the husband. He turns to Abraham and he asks why it is that she doesn't believe this promise. Genesis 17:15, God said to Abraham, as for or concerning Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name and I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. 
This mirrors God's promise to Abraham that kings and people will come from him. And notice, wedged in between the double statement of blessing for Sarah is the promise that God is going to give Abraham a son by means of his own wife, Sarah. And in Genesis 17, 17, Abraham fell on his face in the same act of worship that we see him falling on his face in Genesis 18. And he laughed, this time apparently for joy. Remember, the context is important for understanding the intent behind the actions. And he said in his heart, here in his inward thoughts, will a child be born to a man 100 years old, and will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Not in disbelief, but in, I guess, incredulity is the same thing. But here, this is just a shocking promise. He believes God, but it is astounding to him that this is true. We look into Genesis 2.16, when God gave a commandment to Adam, where in 1.28, we see God addressing both of them. Here we see God addressing the man specifically and giving him a command from himself, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. The Lord God commanded the man. Now, who is supposed to convey this declaration from God to the wife? The man is. Adam is responsible for sharing God's word here with his wife, Eve, who apparently was not yet created. And now, either from his failure to share this word, or from her failure to receive and believe this word, we see her messing with God's word. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the tree. Here, she's not thoroughly learned the promise of God. She is adding a prohibition to it. In other words, she's building a fence around God's provision to also restrict herself from that. So she adds, not just from the trees of the garden we may eat, but she says, no, from the fruit of the garden. Well, this isn't what God said. God said, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. We just see this subtle addition of extra barriers and boundaries that God did not put there. Now, she says, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden. Well, back here, when God stated this to Adam, he explicitly named the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here she's avoiding naming the specific tree that God has prohibited. But now, interestingly, look at what she does. She doesn't just keep going, but she says, God has said. These are the words of God, in other words, that she is claiming. And some of them are, but the statement does not. Because she said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. God did not say or touch it. She is manipulating, changing, twisting, and in many ways adding to, which is an equal problem to taking away from, the word of God. But now this one is interesting, and I just caught this recently. Look at what she does in this last clause, or you will die. This leaves this possibility open as a possibility, perhaps even a probability, but not a prophecy. Here, God says, in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. 
Eve apparently does not believe God's prophecy here. And it leaves her susceptible to deception. Because she's changed the word of God. She has made it her own. And she hasn't believed God's word. And when God comes to visit, who does he call? The Lord God called to the man who was responsible for the woman that he put under Adam's care. And he says, just like this one said when he is about to give this promise to Sarah, where are you? Not because he doesn't know, but for man to consider his place. Well, God, in response here, having asked Abraham why his wife doesn't believe, he asks this question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? In other words, why would you doubt this promise? What about this promise seems too difficult for God to do, the very God who created earth and created life? This term, too difficult, is actually the word for miraculous, or beyond human power. In Exodus 34.10, we read, Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant before all your people, and I will perform miracles, which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. No people were able to produce these miracles. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform before you. Or in Job 37, and this question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? This could be a summary statement of the entire book of Job. He says, listen to this, O Job, stand and consider the wonders of God. And then he goes on to rapid fire, sling them at Job. All of the things that are amazing and impossible for man, but took mere moments for God. Psalm 72, the last words of David in his songbook. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. God and God alone can do this. Blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Well, this is what God is doing. He is working towards establishing his glory. And man will not participate in that. God will fulfill his glory. And God will pour his glory on man, but man will not glorify himself. Psalm 139, 13 through 14, most of us know this psalm by heart. Even if we don't realize we do, we know this psalm. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. The miracle of reproduction is not simply a natural process of the human body. God is involved in this growth of a human. God is the one knitting him together in the womb of the mother. And this is exactly what God is claiming that he will do with Sarah. It is God who is going to work to knit together this promised seed in the belly of Sarah. And this is a miraculous work, just like every pregnancy. But here, it is beyond doubt that God is intimately invested in this work. 
Or how about Isaiah 9, 6? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, looking forward to the ultimate promised seed, the Messiah. The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor or Miraculous Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. God will repeat this question to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 32, after speaking of the new covenant that he is going to produce for and to Israel, finishing their restoration, their redemption, giving them regeneration. Well, here, as Jeremiah continues to ask questions about the redemption of Israel, God says, is anything too difficult for me? Israel is about to be handed over to the Chaldeans. Israel is about to be swept off into captivity for their disobedience. But God is promising restoration. What looks impossible to the prophet Jeremiah, to God, is just a drop in the bucket. And it all works towards his glory. And so we and Sarah should all agree with Jeremiah and his prayer Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth your great power and by your outstretched arm, and nothing is too difficult for you. Well, notice as well, after Sarah's disbelief, after Sarah's, for lack of a better term, rejection of God's promise, God re-promises this gift of a son. God doesn't say, well, okay, Sarah, until you trust me, until you fully believe me, until your faith is strong enough, you won't have the experience of this promise. No, he says, I am going to do this. This has been his promise throughout Israel, and this is why he has pulled Israel out as a unique people, not so that Israel will earn salvation for the world, but so that he can work salvation through Israel. Not because Israel was the best of all nations, not because it was the biggest, the most powerful, the most prominent, but because in his working through Israel, it would be absolutely clear that it was God working and not man working. And so it begins with the patriarchs. It is absolutely clear and certain that this is not being received simply because of Abraham and Sarah's faithfulness but because of God's faithfulness to his promise. And so after her disbelief, God says, at the appointed time, I will return to you, and not at this time next year, but at the time of life, at the time of conception, and Sarah will have a son. Now just to drive this point home, and also as kind of a preview of events to come, in, the, in this series, we had in Genesis 17, thir a 13-year gap between the birth of Ishmael and the promise of this specific son, who is going to be named Isaac, to Abraham. Well, very soon after, probably within days, maybe weeks, after this Genesis 17 visitation, God has returned to Sarah and Abraham. He is going to teach them something about the nation that he is going to bring through Isaac and how he is working now, in spite of the fact that man continues to be sinful, just like they were before the flood, just like they were after the flood. We saw even Noah had a parallel to the fall. 
Well, God is going to work through these divided nations to care for this one nation, to establish it in holiness, to bring the Messiah through it. And he has come here in Genesis 18 to show them the consequences, one, of a nation that separates itself from God as he begins to show them the destruction of Sodom, but two, to show them the certainty of his promise of the coming Savior, the coming seed. Now in Genesis 19, immediately after Genesis 18, we see him moving rapidly into the destruction of Sodom. This destruction only takes one day. We return back to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 20, and we see them acting not so faithfully in a controversy with Abimelech. Abraham is once again going to sell his wife to someone else besides himself. But now after the promise of Sarah's imminent conception has been explicitly promised. In other words, God is opening her womb and Abraham in a great lapse of faith is going to sell this wife of his through whom God is going to bring the promised seed into a different sexual union. God is going to work to restore this, to preserve her, and he is going to come to her at that time then in Genesis 21, after the controversy with Abimelech, to tell her that she has now conceived the promised seed. And nine months after that, this son will be born. Genesis 22 is going to pick up quite a few years after that, um, at the uh, while Isaac is now a young man. We have just a few last words from Sarah. It probably would have been better had she just said nothing at all. But Sarah denied it. God asked Abraham, why doesn't she believe this promise? Abraham stays silent as God is explaining his own power and his own faithfulness to this promise. And Sarah pipes up from inside the tent, I did not laugh. Why did she do this? She was afraid. She was afraid because of her sin of unbelief. And so God, not having any part of this, says, no, you did. You did laugh. I mean, this kind of reminds me of 1 John 1.8 and 1 John 1.10. If we say that uh, we have no sin, we, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say that we have not sinned, we call him a liar. And the truth is not in us. Sarah here is claiming that God is a liar. When God said, you laughed. She said, no, I didn't. This is more of a statement than just, I didn't do it. It is a statement of, your testimony is not true. This is a big deal. But notice, God does not take away the promise. Because the promise is not contingent on the faithfulness of the people he's promised it to. The Mosaic Law will be. Experience of the blessing in the land will be contingent on their faithfulness to God so that he can show them that they can't be faithful by their own power, that they need him and his righteousness. But here, God working through the generations to bring about this promised seed, to bring about the Savior, this does not require a faithful people, but a faithful God. And that he is. And he is going to work through this to bring them into faithfulness. 
but he was going to do that primarily through the new covenant, which is part of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, this problem of lying, we think of lying as just a really simple matter. Oh, it was just a white lie. That's okay. Well, a lie in and of itself is rejecting God's reality because it is a rejection of truth. And God himself is truth. And this was very much the issue back in the garden as well. Romans 1 tells us this explicitly, that it was a rejection of the truth that God had given to them. And so then the Lord God called to the woman and or to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Afraid because of his sin, because I was naked and so he hid himself. Well, now when he turns to the woman, what was her problem or what was her excuse? The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The problem was she was lied to and she believed that after she had been told the truth by God and disbelieved that. Opening ourselves to the unreality of lies separates ourselves from God's truths and opens up, opens us up to the susceptibility of sin in Satan's world system. Notice John 8:44, Jesus speaking to the unbelieving Pharisees. He says, you are of the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. It's the Pharisees that end up carrying the torch for Christ's crucifixion. And uh, he was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And this is important. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. So when we are lying, from whose nature or from whose power are we accessing? Sarah here is not depending on the truth of God's word, which is her greatest defense against the world system, but instead she is mirroring the world system, mirroring the nature of Satan, who is the organizer of this world system. God is going to work this out in Sarah. She will be humiliated through the fulfillment of God's promise, but she will have joy. In Genesis 7-1, we see God's plan to destroy the entire earth and start again with Noah. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. This was an incredibly drastic measure that God took to preserve the seed line, to preserve the world, to preserve mankind through its Savior. And in Genesis 12-3, Rather than destroying the entire earth, God pulls one man out and says he's going to start through him. He says, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse, I will protect you, in other words, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And now I think there's a very important reason also why Moses has stitched this into the record of Genesis. There are many good reasons. One of them is because Israel continues to test God's patience. I think at the time that they received the book of Genesis, 
the exclusion of the first generation of the or the first exodus generation has already occurred many of the themes seem to point towards that fact to show the second generation their need for faithfulness to god but here in Exodus 32.9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. God might have said this about Sarah in her disbelief. And he says, I will make of you a great nation. He says to Moses, I'm going to destroy all of them, and I'm going to turn you into the nation like I did with Noah, like I did with Abraham. And what does Moses say? I think this was a test for Moses. Is Moses going to be a good leader here? Is Moses going to be a faithful leader depending on God's will and not his own? Seeking God's glory and not his own. And he, then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Remember in Exodus 34, just a few chapters later, Moses is going to relate this to God's miraculous, wonderful working that only God could have done. And so Moses entreats God saying, remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel. Remember this promise that you made. Your servants to whom you swore by yourself, you swore on your own integrity. The issue here isn't, is Israel faithful? But God, are you faithful? And he said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. He is reminding God of his promise to Abraham, the same promise that God is coming here to confirm to Sarah. And so just as God is not going to take this promise away because of the unfaithfulness of Israel in this generation, God is not going to take this promise away from Sarah and even from Abraham because of their unfaithfulness. This promise has nothing to do with their faithfulness, but all to do with God's faithfulness. And so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. He was not going to wipe them out from that point forward. And so we can stand on this promise. We know that it is true, and we see its fulfillment in Genesis 21. And as we see God fulfilling his promises towards Israel in the past, we know that he will fulfill his promises towards Israel in the future. And if we know that he will fulfill his promises towards Israel in the future, then we know that we have a future that can be guaranteed as well. If God abandons Israel, if he is that kind of God, then his integrity is in question. His ability to keep to his word is in question. And then our salvation would be in question as well. But because God has showed us his rec shown us his reputation in the Old Testament, we know that his reputation will stand, that he will be faithful to Israel. They will receive their kingdom when they come to faith in the one true God, the Messiah of Israel. And it will come through this promised descendant of Sarah. It'll come through Isaac. It'll come through Jacob. It'll come through Judah. It'll pass through David. It'll come to the one man, Jesus Christ. And he is the savior of the world. And he offers not only the promised kingdom that is coming, but salvation to each individual who no more than trusts in his offer of eternal life. And so we remember this morning's main point 
that God has chosen to restore creation through a single nation. This is the nation of Israel. Just like he pulled Noah out, he's pulled Abraham out for the purpose of making a nation over which the Messiah will rule over creation. God will ensure the fulfillment of this promise by his own integrity. And despite man's relatively unchanged sinful condition, God will prepare a means of restoring fellowship between the holy God and fallen man. And God here visits Abraham and Sarah in anticipation of the birth of this nation in Isaac, in the fulfilled promise of a seed by Sarah. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you once again for your faithfulness. We thank you that as we see on every page of the Old Testament that you have always been faithful, and we read on every page of the New Testament that you continue to be faithful. We look forward to, not with hopeful anticipation, but with a guaranteed anticipation of the days to come when you will rule in righteousness over your creation. We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.